Growing up in the 90s in Canada, public service announcements about recycling were everywhere. We even had superheroes. Only you can make less trash. And remember the three R's. Reduce, reuse, and recycle. And we had all these cheesy but catchy jingles. But now, it's 30 years later, and we're still trying to close that loop, also known as the circular economy. Recycling programs have helped, but they haven't been overly effective at reducing waste. So why didn't all those PSAs work? One of the reasons is that there is this too strong focus on recycling, really. Like recycling is part of circular economy, can be a solution, but the issue is that it's often used as a synonym for circular economy. But recycling should come as a last resort. That's our friend and Morningstar Sustainalytics alum, Juliette Goulet. Hi, um, I'm Juliette Goulet. I'm a project manager in the Plastics Initiative at the Ellen MacArthur Foundation. The Ellen MacArthur Foundation is a charity that was established in 2010 with the aim of accelerating the transition to a circular economy, which goes far beyond just recycling. Juliet explains it best. So a linear economy is an economy where we extract resources, we make products and use them. So yeah, so it's, it's this very like extractive economy without the thinking on like reusing resources. And if we look at the circular economy, then it's really puts a very strong focus on design, the design of the product, what we call upstream, so that unnecessary materials are eliminated or the product or packaging are designed to be reused. We often use an analogy actually, is that if you have a water running down the tap and flooding your bathroom, the first thing that you would do is not reaching out for the mop. You would first turn down the tap um, and this is similar for circular economy. The first action that we should take is really to reduce the amount of, of materials being used. So yeah, so recycling can be part of the solution, but should come as last resort. I'm Curtis File, Editorial Manager with Morningstar Sustainalytics, and your host for this episode of ESG in Conversation, the podcast where we ask big questions about ESG and use interviews, research, and storytelling to uncover the answers. In this episode, we're asking, how do businesses, governments, and investors fit into the circular economy? As investment and corporate leaders around the world continue to gain more sophisticated understanding of the impacts of climate change, many are eyeing circular business models as potential solutions to mitigate their impact. In circular economy business models, organizations try to stop waste from being produced in their value chain from the very start, rather than attempting to simply recycle what they can at the very end of their product's life cycle. A true circular economy involves sharing, leasing, reusing, repairing, and recycling existing materials and products for as long as possible. Proponents say that it comes with a lot of potential benefits. The Ellen MacArthur Foundation, for instance, says that by 2040, a circular economy has the potential to reduce greenhouse gas emissions by 25%, create 700,000 net additional jobs, and generate savings of $200 billion US per year. With such promising upside, why then has it been challenging for businesses to adopt circular business models? I think for me, like the challenge is that 
at the moment, business interests often take precedence. And we seem to live in a kind of illusion that we can continue business as usual by just tweaking on a few things, like switching to renewable energy while keeping production and consumption similar as they were before, or tweaking the design of a packaging to make it more recyclable. Um, but this is not making changes at the scale and pace needed. From a bird's eye view, the problem seems unwieldy to say the least. For businesses and governments to begin implementing circular models, they must first have a clear vision of success. It is important that you have a single strategic vision and that whoever carries that out, carries it out. You know, they, they don't really have many options not to. That's Wayne Hubbard. He's the chief executive officer of ReLondon, a partnership of the mayor of London and the London boroughs to improve waste and resource management. The organization's goal is to transform the city into a leading low carbon circular economy. At ReLondon, we have a, a theory of change which sets out what we think needs to happen. And the impact that we're after is reducing carbon emissions, but reducing consumption-based carbon emissions. And we also have people uh, who can help us, who are what we call enablers, like the government, uh, the media, the education sector, so on and so forth, uh, then uh, we can put together a matrix of how we can uh, deliver some of this activity on a citywide level, and then we can apply uh, at the neighbourhood level. So that gives us a framework to try and understand this, this complicated and overwhelming problem. Wayne says that the key to success is to shrink the problem down. Where it starts to get, I think, really, really interesting is, so London is a city of around 9 million people, which is you know, if you're sitting here, you think, well, how on earth are we going to change 9 million people? How are we going to reach all of those people and make the changes that we that we need to happen? But uh, interestingly, uh, London has 600 or so high streets, um, shopping centres, I suppose, 600. And 90% of Londoners live within 15 minutes of those 600 locations. So if we can deal with those 600 locations and not the 9 million individual Londoners by putting together partnerships of citizens, business, local government and civil society, then um, we can define a template approach that we can apply to those 600 neighbourhoods. And we create circular neighbourhoods or low waste neighbourhoods or sustainable neighbourhoods. But creating these circular sustainable neighbourhoods requires a strong community, and it has to be built on mutually beneficial partnerships. In London, with our you know, incredible entrepreneurial and startup culture, we have this, uh, we have this wellspring of, of business. It's, it's, you know, it's a bit like the, uh, you know, maybe the Silicon Valley of the circular economy. We've supported over getting towards 400 businesses, um, and citizens can, you know, can, can opt to uh, go to their refill shop or uh, or borrow a drill or uh, use a reusable piece of packaging or you know whatever it is or share food um, through an app or or take advantage of the fact that a restaurant has food at the end of the day that it hasn't sold but it's selling off cheap all these things are now you know possible not just because we've supported them you know we have but because we have this in London, we have this interesting crowdsourcing of these solutions. And that means that citizens, local authorities, business and government can, can look at these range of solutions and start to reduce waste, not because they're trying, but just because 
they are just because these businesses are inherently less wasteful. And I think that's the kind of, that's where the magic happens for me. But how does this scale up to larger multinational corporations with complex supply chains? There's no one size fits all solution, but the encouraging news is they're already thinking about it. A lot of this circular economy sort of thought leadership started with the big corporates. Um, and it was big corporates in certain spaces. So the likes of Renault or Unilever, um, who, and, and there'll be others, you know, who, who are making stuff. They're looking into the future and seeing that there's going to be potential disruption there by geopolitical events, by environmental events, by climate change, by just resource extraction, making these materials rare and therefore it becomes harder to get them by government regulation, increasing regulation in the EU and elsewhere. So these big corporates um, started to think about the circular economy as a viable alternative to, as a hedge against uh, all of those factors that I've just mentioned. So in, in a way, the corporates are both uh, a part of the problem and part of the solution because they're still churning out all this stuff, fast fashion, plastics, packaging, all of that still churned out by these big corporates. But they are, I am absolutely certain of this, they are keenly interested in innovation and developing alternative business models and desperate, I think, desperate for those business models to be successful and governments to increasingly support the development of, of those business models because it's not in their interests to have a situation where their supply chains are disrupted, that disrupts their business. Businesses and local governments aren't the only ones taking the circular economy seriously. Investors are also playing a huge role in identifying the right opportunities. Ultimately, it's totally in the interest of the companies that their um, investors challenge them and hold them to account because when longer term profitability is at risk, which it tends to be, um, I think investors have a role to play to exercise meaningful pressure on the management of companies to keep working towards a circular economy in this case. That's my colleague. Joris Lasseur, Associate Director of Sustainalytics Stewardship Services Team. He's joining me for this episode with our other colleague, Jonathan Keller. I'm Jonathan Keller and I'm a manager in the Stewardship Services Team. From an investor perspective, Joris says being active and engaged is the best way to discover new opportunities for sustainability. It's not great to wait for regulation to adjust the rules of the market. It's much more positive to look for the business and investment opportunities that contribute to a more sustainable future. Investors aren't being shy about finding those opportunities with the biggest players in the market. What, what we've been hearing from big asset managers especially is that when considering circular economy as a focus topic, um, they express interest in carefully selecting industries for us to focus on, uh, to prioritize uh, industries and even specific companies. There's definitely a preference of many uh, public equity investors to, to prioritize the bigger companies because they represent a bigger weight in their portfolio. And if they can have progress there, there's more impact and progress in their portfolio uh, overall. So investors are eager, 
and big companies are willing to integrate new approaches. But what does this look like in practice? I would um, maybe like to point to the example of uh, one of the uh, ele an electronics company, which um, was was part of our um, target set of engagement companies. So it um, integrated a clear, strong and simple statement of integration of the circular circularity into its strategy. Um, operationally, it implemented various circularity measures. So it sourced uh, 1.7 million pounds of ocean-bound plastics in one of the years under review and partnered with us with a third party on a certification scheme for ocean-bound plastics to do with testing, inspection and certification. And it was also able to, to point to the fact that 85% of a certain notable brand of products that it put out into the world um, contained post-consumer recycled, recycled content and that it was able over a period of 20 years to use uh, 125,000 tonnes of, of recycled plastic, um, in, in, including from its own products that, that it used in a sort of a closed loop fashion. So there you can see like a real alignment between, between strategy, between sourcing and the and, and results in terms of the products that the company put out into, into the world, which um, would have had a, a significant cost saving in terms of sourcing materials. And also given the success of this product line that we're talking about would have made a, a notable contribution to its bottom line. But it's not always as straightforward as recycling plastic and celebrating the win. Getting large companies to make changes to their supply chains isn't easy. And even if they have the resources to make changes, it needs to be done thoughtfully to ensure that the solutions aren't creating more problems than they solve. This is a particularly big issue in the supply chains of cleantech, in things like wind turbines, electric vehicles, and hydrogen fuel cells. So in the business-to-business -business space, there's, there's some demand because they're big buyers and they're super conscious about their responsibility or reputational risk. And they ask questions, critical questions, like how is there not terrible labor conditions in the supply chain? Or how is there not a lot of pollution in the mining, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but we're encouraging companies not to wait, not to wait for customer demand, because it's super important that they get this right, uh, because they are there to replace a problematic industry based on fossil fuels. But if they're not doing it right, they will end up defeating their own purpose and still ripping up the planet. Um, I think it's now by now quite well known that by ditching fossil fuels, we need a lot of metals to electrify the economy and those metals need to be mined. So we're, we're finding ways to recycle metals forever, but because we're electrifying so many industrial processes, a lot of these metals are many different metals are needed. They need to be mined, refined, and that takes disruption of local environments. And it's very hard to do that in a responsible manner, but our engagements are definitely directed to address that as, as much as we can. Juliet has seen some of those same questions arise in the packaging and plastics industries. And there isn't always a clear solution. This needs to be done very carefully because we do see some companies reducing the amount of plastic packaging by substituting to paper or by, or by using other materials. Um, and actually there is a very interesting report by Unomia that I recommend everyone in um, in the sector to read really, because it looks at the action needed in the material sector, for instance, plastic, aluminum, steel, 
to be aligned with the carbon budget allowed to remain under the 1.5 degrees Celsius um, under the Paris Agreement. And in this report, they mentioned that the demand for plastic need to reduce by 3% every year to be within the carbon budget. Um, and it's important not to just substitute for paper or other materials such as aluminium as this risk leading to unintentional trade-offs. So for instance, this would create more competition for land use, which will further destruct habitats and can also lead to increasing GHG emission. So in brief, like there is a need to reduce at the moment all material consumption to decrease um, yeah, our reliance on fossil fuel, but also to reduce uh, the burden that we have on all planetary boundaries. In researching this episode, there was a lot to learn and understand because the circular economy really encompasses everything. It's every level of government, small businesses and multinationals, and complex product cycles and supply chains. It seems impossible to even pick a starting point. In talking to all of these experts, the best advice I've heard for both businesses and investors is to shrink the problem down. And as Jonathan puts it, look for the opportunities. In short, the main things I would encourage people to think about when they think about the circular economy is that it's an opportunity and not just a risk mitigation measure, and that it can act as a sort of a fulcrum for their efforts in relation to many other sustainability issues. That's it for this episode of ESG in Conversation. If you'd like more information about investor engagement on the circular economy or plastics, head over to the Resource Center at sustainalytics.com or reach out to our engagement teams. If you have any questions or suggestions for topics you'd like to learn more about, email us at podcast at sustainalytics.com. Thanks to Juliet, Wayne, Joris, and Jonathan for joining me and providing their insights. Copyright 2023 Sustainalytics, all rights reserved. Sustainalytics does not assess current market trends, legal or regulatory developments, but only opines on recent ESG-relevant developments. The information and data contained herein are proprietary of Sustainalytics and or third-party content providers. These are intended for informational, non-commercial use only, and may not be copied, distributed, or used in any other way, including via citation. These do not constitute an endorsement of any product or project, nor investment advice or expert opinion, are not part of any offering and do not constitute an offer or indication to buy or sell securities and have not been submitted to nor received approval from any relevant regulatory bodies. Sustainalytics assumes no responsibility for the reliability, completeness, or accuracy of any opinion provided herein and makes no representation or warranty as to any of the information, including without limitation, any representation or warranty that the information or any portion of it is accurate, complete, or suitable for a particular purpose. Neither Sustainalytics Morningstar nor its content providers are responsible for any damages or losses arising from any use of this information and use is subject to conditions available at www.sustainalytics.com forward slash legal dash disclaimers.